Hello, hello. Super quickly before we start, just need to say that we lost a recording, which meant we lost a panelist and we lost a bit of sound quality. So I'm sorry about that, but honestly, this episode is so good. Anyway, make sure you stick around to the end because we did a real cracker of a segment there. So be there for that. Uh, cheers. And here's the music. This week, a couple of Melbourne derbies to talk about. Victory's women landed a spot in the grand final by winning theirs. Also, the manager has been sacked and surprise, surprise, he coached the bottom team. Is it all Daniel Sturridge's fault? Heaps of Socceroos chat as well as we build up to the clash against Japan. Then we do some singing. I'm Harper Pestinger and this is the KitCast. It's not just me here tonight. We do have a panel here for the second time uh, in the space of about half an hour. We're kicking off the show. Uh, it's absolutely awesome to have, first off, Lucas Ronaldo. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Uh, in the first edition of this podcast before you absolutely butchered the recording of it, you had a real good quip <laughs> for me in the intro. Too bad for that, mate. That's all gone. You can't, you can't, you can't get me twice. <laughs> It's devastating. I was weighing up whether I should say it again, but it loses all the element of surprise, doesn't it? It's, yeah, really flat about that. But also here uh, is Tom Williams, and he is pumped to talk about Socceroos. Tom, how are you feeling? Very good, thank you, Harper. I think the, the Socceroos games tend to keep me relevant on Twitter, so looking forward to talking about them as per usual. And uh, the, the third banana here on the panel today Simon Hill. How are you, Simon? Very good. Don't worry. The soccer is keeping me relevant as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's awesome to have all of you guys on. And we did have a little women's uh, A-League women chat with Kieran Yap that we recorded just before. We're going to record it again, slot it somewhere in the middle of the podcast here. But for now, I reckon we get into the men's Melbourne derby. It happened on Saturday night. Tom, you weren't there, but you watched it. It's Melbourne City 1, Melbourne Victory 1. What did you take out of it? On, on the pitch, I thought it was a great encounter. I thought it was a very competitive between both sides. Melbourne Victory started the game as the better side, in my opinion. I thought it was really refreshing to see Nick D'Agostino looking so confident. Um, it's very rare that we see an Aussie centre forward who just seems to have that self-belief. Like, I, I know I use the word je ne sais quoi quite a lot. But it actually is. It, 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 it actually you know is. What it means, Tom. Do you know what it means? <laughs> Absolutely. Je parle bien français, Simon. Très bien. Très bien. Oui. The, the subtle Lucas, do you have any right idea here. what's going on here? Oui. <laughs> That's good to hear because I'm absolutely clueless. Tom, do go on though. But yeah, I know I use I overuse that phrase a lot, but it's actually true. It's just like th- there's something intangible about when a striker is on form, and you can just feel it. Like it just feels like D'Agostino is on form. I know he had a couple of chances that he missed, but he was getting himself into such good scoring positions. And I thought it was really refreshing to see that, particularly in the first half. City came back in that second half. They had a lot of opportunities from set pieces towards the end of the game. And to be honest, I don't think anyone would have said that it wasn't deserved if City had have snatched the um, the victory at, towards the end. But ultimately, football was the winner of that game because in front of an 18,000-strong crowd at Amy Park, 
thought it was one of the better uh, sort of showpieces for the league this season. And uh, Lucas, Tom alluded to City really uh, coming home hard there at the end of that game, had heaps of chances in the last five minutes or so. But uh, victory, of course, had that midweek game that went to extra time against Vissel Kobe to qualify for the ACL. Uh, how much do you reckon that affected their, I guess, stamina and fitness going into that game? Yeah, I think it had a huge effect. Like you say, they definitely tired. Um, City had a bunch of chances in the second half. Then you saw the desperation, that chance near the end, um, where Gary, uh, there was about five victory players just flying in front of the ball to try and try and prevent uh, a City goal. McLaren, of course, could have won it in the 89th minute. Bit worrying to miss a chance like that when we, we're going to need to rely on him, well, for the Japan game at least, uh, from a Swakaru's perspective. Um, but yeah, the the, the a part that we touched on in our in our lost podcast a minute ago is sort of comparing um, the Sydney derby to the, to the Melbourne derby. I'll throw it to you again uh, again, Simon. Um, in terms of these two derbies are clearly the showpiece events of the Aussie football calendar. Has the Melbourne derby eclipsed the Sydney derby in terms of being number one? This is completely stolen from Tom's tweet. Um, so long may he stay relevant. Well, I've had a bit of time to prepare for this one now, but uh, when you threw it to me in the Lost podcast, uh, I, I was actually, oh, that's such a good question. And it is a good question. Um, and I think it's it's got some bite to it as well. Um, you know, the Sydney derby has lost a fair bit of prestige over the last few years. Part of that is to do with, you know, the Wanderers decline on the pitch. They haven't made the finals since 16, 17. Um, you know, they've had a, a lot of issues. And uh, as, as I also mentioned before, you know, Sydney FC are you know, playing away from the Sydney football stadium, which I don't think has helped as well. Um, but the, the noise around the Sydney derby, which used to be deafening in the early years, uh, has dissipated an awful lot, and I think they had fourteen thousand uh, for the one that they played two or three weeks back. Which you know, I mean, once upon a time you couldn't get a ticket for more money for that particular fixture. Um, now it seems to have lost that edge for whatever reason. I hope we can get it back because you know, in its time, uh, it was absolutely fantastic. It's it's. You know, as a commentator, and I called, you know, some of the first ones in those early seasons, particularly from Pertex Stadium, which was very small, very compact. And it was the closest I felt to being at a big European game since I've been in Australia. It really did. And the Melbourne Derby has, has done that on occasion as well. Uh, but I think, you know, the modern version of the, of the Sydney Derby is very tame in comparison Um I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I hope we can get it back because it was brilliant and can be again. But in terms of which one's bigger at the moment, yeah, I think you've got a fair point. I think the Melbourne Derby probably has a bit more edge to it and, and certainly, you know, bigger crowd because City have started to win things and Victory is still the biggest club in the country. So, you know, you've got those two narratives running side by side. Um, maybe, and I, again, I asked this question of, of those of you based in Victoria uh, in the Lost podcast, which shall now be referred to uh, for more, um, whether the publicity for the Melbourne Derby and the build-up to this game was 
was good because you know we've certainly lost that in Sydney, but I don't know what it was like in Victoria this last week. Was it good? Yeah, it was. It was quite lackluster. Uh, in my opinion, there was not much sort of coverage on the game, and I think obviously that's partly our fault being a media organisation. I certainly didn't uh, put out any articles when normally that's sort of my job to cover the Melbourne teams. But I think definitely the the Christmas derby, there was a lot more coverage as a, a sort of more marquee fixture, and I was not expecting a very large crowd for this weekend, for last weekend's derby, but we ended up getting 18,000, which was larger than I expected. And ultimately, the atmosphere was incredible through the telly. I can't even imagine what it would have been like at the game, probably similar to the Christmas derby. Um, but that's what we've got to strive for. That's what the APL has got to strive for, is to get those attendances back into the grounds because there is a tangible relationship between atmosphere on the off the pitch and the quality of football being produced on the pitch. 100% agree with that. I think this is a league-wide problem at the moment, uh, a lack of marketing awareness of when the games are on. Obviously, COVID has been a big problem because we've got a lot of uh, rearranged fixtures, a lot of midweek games. But I think a lot of fans have, have sort of lost the thread of, of where the season is at. Um, and you're right that bums on seats are the benchmark of how well the league is going or otherwise. Uh, and I would also say that playing in, you know, proper size stadiums, obviously there's nothing wrong with Amy Park, that's perfectly fine. Uh, the same with Combank Stadium in, in Parramatta here in Sydney. Uh, Sydney FC will be back at the Sydney Football Stadium next season. Again, I've asked the question, is that uh, curtain going to be there to make it, you know, feel more boutique stadium? It's not happening as far as I'm aware. Um, how good is that going to look in a 50,000 stadium on a week? Um, but there we go. You know, this is, this is the reality that we live in. Um, but it's up to the clubs to drive attendances. I, I think it, it makes such a difference, not, not just, you know, for broadcasters like us, because it looks better, feels better, sounds better. But I think it's better for the players as well. I think they respond to having you know, big crowd uh, in a good stadium with the stands close to the pitch. And, you know, that's why the Melbourne Derby probably resonates so well at the moment because it's it's played at that venue, which has a good surface as well. The fans are close in. You get half a decent crowd. It looks like a good game of football, whether it is or isn't. So a lot of it is is perception as much as, as reality. I think with that, uh, we're just about back up to where we were uh, at the Lost, Lost Podcast. So, Lucas, a nice fresh question for you. Uh, City, they could have got three points clear there at, at the top of the table uh, if they won, but of course they did not. So with the draw, uh, just a point clear for Western United. They've played, Western United have played two games fewer as well. So front runner for the Premiership in your eyes, who is it? Well, I think you still have to hang your hats on City, particularly because of Western United's result on the weekend, smashed by by Sydney. Um even though with the two games, looking at the latter, you would, in essence, have an advantage to Western United. But particularly with that experience from last season of City having been there and, and done it and got that monkey off the back, I think they're still the favourites. Um, then after that, it's, it's, it's really a mess. Adelaide, I'm still not convinced, even as a, as a South Australian, I'm still not convinced by us at the back. Um, and then as Tom will attest to... Uh, MacArthur or Fagazi. Um, so 
I, I think it's still I think it's still City as the favourites for me. Uh, Tom, your thoughts? Because you think just about every team near the top of those tables for Gazi, I reckon. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd hate to steal my French-speaking protege and Simon's uh, ten uh, colleagues' thunder, Mr. Robbie Thompson, by bringing up the uh, expected goal statistics, oh, but. Oh. but western united have been significantly outperforming their expected goals all season and a lot of that obviously has to do with the style of football that uh that aloisi has inculcated at, at that club in terms of sitting deep in a low block and looking to transition quickly to catch the opposition off guard but I just don't see that as a sustainable way of winning games in that league and in this league and I think we saw the first time where probably all season where Western United's last line has been breached quite easily on the weekend when Sydney beat them 3-0. So I still see, sort of on your question before to Lucas, I still see City as the front runners in this league. And I think when City play their best football, I'm not sure there's a team in this league who can match that, even as my bias as they are a victory fan. Um, <coughs> I might slightly disagree with that, Tom. Um, only, only because I, th- I think we've got to give Weston the benefit of the doubt that, you know, maybe they had a bad day at the office. Uh, they haven't had too many this season, defensively at least. Uh, you're right in, in what you say about how they play. They're very much a transitional team, but, you know, that's very much modern football these days. Maybe not with quite a low block in, the, you know, the top teams in Europe, but they break so well. And, of course, when Diamante is fit, which he's, he's not been for the last few weeks, they have that little bit of quality in terms of uh, a guy who is able to release passes over the top accurately for the pace of the likes of, of Dylan Perez on the right-hand side and Conor Payne when he's, when he's fit on the left and others. Um, I, I think the quality of their foreigners, and I've said this a lot this season, you look at the, the foreigners that John Aloisi has at his disposal. You mentioned Diamante, you mentioned Leo Lacroix, who is outstanding. Um, Rene Curien is now starting to you know, get his, his game fitness going. Uh, Alexander Priovic, who had a slightly slow start, is starting to bang in goals. I, I think they've got arguably the best collection of foreign players in the competition and supplemented by you know, experienced pros like Jamie Young between the posts. Um, and and one of those Neil Kilkenny in midfield is a very very good player. I'm, I'm not so sure that Western won't win the Premiership. To be honest, I think they're they're entitled to one bad week. It'll be instructive how they go in their next game. If it becomes a two three game sequence, then yeah, fair enough. But um, yeah, I think it's an intriguing race. And of course, City have the Asian Champions League to deal with as well. They're going to have a month. Uh, away, right at the, the culmination of the, the regular campaign, uh, which is why they're playing a lot of fixtures now, of course. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Lucas, Western United's opponent uh, at the weekend, Sydney FC. Sydney won 3 0 and uh, start to finish their chances this week, which is uh, good for them. Yeah, they were clinical, which was really a, a, a facet of um, Sydney in the past when they've been so successful. Uh, four shots on target. Three goals. Uh, great for them to see Narsin get a goal. Um, lovely finish from him. Um, and, yeah, I think they just set up much better than they have in uh, in recent weeks. Mustafa Amini, also a massive moment him. 
for him to sort of break that duck and he was very good throughout. So I think for them it's a matter of we've been sort of speaking about when are they going to get rid of these cobwebs, when are they going to play to the level we know they can because they've sort of just looked like something's just missing. So we'll see if this could be a springboard to, to them being as good as we know they can be. And in some other news, over West or Tom, just your hand up quickly. Yeah, I just wanted to speak about Sydney for a bit because I thought, I think Sydney are a fairly intriguing team. I think most people probably expected Sydney to be a lot better coming into the season. I certainly did. I thought their squad depth was phenomenal. I thought the, the signings that they made were pretty impressive. Obviously, losing Luke Braddon at the start of the season did not help at all. I think he's been the most sort of transformative midfielder over the past few years in the A-League. He's, he's been phenomenal at the heart of that midfield, both um, for Sydney and during his time at Melbourne City. Um, but I think the real difference in the past couple of weeks for Sydney has been Luciano Narsing. He just adds that extra bit of class to their attack. And I don't think it's necessarily as poignant as it was when, when Sydney had Ninkovic and Adrian Mijewski on either side during that 17-18 season. But I think there is something in having that extra Ninkovic sort of player in the team who can create something out of nothing. I think it's really beneficial for Sydney, especially heading into the last few games of this season where they'll be looking to, I guess, um, challenge for top six. Well, I'll tell you the thing that I think is, is added more than anything else, and that's pace. Uh, and that's that's what Sydney really didn't have. I mean, Costa Barbarossa has it, but of course he's only, you know, just recovering from quite a serious injury and looks a little bit out of sorts at the moment. But Narsing has that searing pace and directness, and of course he can take players on. I was impressed with him from the moment he came off the bench in the Sydney derby, even though uh, Sydney didn't uh, uh, win the game that day. But I thought he actually gave them a little bit of spark on a very flat day for the Sky Blues. So. Sydney normally finished the season quite strongly. Um, now, again, the caveat to that is that they've got Champions League as well, which is going to test the depth of, of their squad. Um, but I, I do think that they will finish strongly because they just normally do. And they've had injuries. Babo's been in and out. Lafondra's been in and out. Um, yeah, Nikovic has played every game virtually, but obviously he's, he's you know he's getting on a little bit, so he can't shoulder the entire burden. Um, but I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if the likes of Babo and Lafondra start scoring again quite regularly because they are quality players, even though they're a bit uh, older these days. So yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't rule out a late run from Sydney FC. And remember that they've reached the last three grand finals, so they know how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we need to get to some uh, news and matters of a team that we probably don't talk about enough on this show. Perth Glory. They've sacked Richie Garcia. Lucas, Perth, bottom of the table. Uh, They're winless in seven. Feels like the right decision from them. Yeah, you've got to feel for him just because the situation is being put in. Um, Of course, having to spend so much of the season um, uh, interstate, they've come back. They... Even though it wasn't a great performance from them, they it, it also at the same time they had plenty. They had a fair bit of the ball. They had sixteen shots um, and had opportunities. I think Rawlins had a good um, good shot that was saved. 
Um, but yeah, defensively, they're diabolical. Feel for Daniel Stein up to, was it, to go on the road for three or four months? Um, I did an interview, I don't know if you saw it, with Brett Lambert, uh, one of the great characters of Perth Glory, their kit manager. Uh, it's not actually his official title. I think it's management or logistics or something <laughs> like that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, he told me some very interesting insights into uh, how Daniel Sturridge has, has had to live over the last few months. He hasn't even got a house in Perth. Well, he might do now, but he, he hadn't a couple of weeks ago uh, when I spoke to Brett because he hadn't been in the state long enough. So he was essentially living out of eight suitcases, uh, which were being carted around the country by the club. Um and indicative of, you know, just how unsettling it all was. Uh, apparently, Daniel Sturridge has a, a baby, a small child, and he, he ordered a, a baby cot online, and it took about two months because every time they were moving into something, Sydney to Brisbane to Victoria to Tasmania, yeah, hugely unsettling and, and perhaps unsurprising that on the back of that, given his age and his history of injuries, that he's picked up, you know, soft tissue problems and, and therefore has been almost completely unavailable. It's, it's a damn shame because I think we should, however it's turned out, I, th I think we should applaud Tony Sage. And Tony Sage gets a lot of stick mm. and, and fair enough in some respects. But... Yeah, he does sometimes put his money where his mouth is and says, right, OK, I'm going to give this a crack and we'll, we'll go for a genuine marquee. And storage is a genuine marquee, but it just hasn't quite worked out. So I, I feel sorry for Perth in that regard. Um, I, I feel a little bit sorry for Richard Garcia, to be honest. He's, he's done all the hard yards in all those different states that I've talked about, and here he is. He's out of a job. But you know, I, th I think recent results and performances, uh, along with one or two rumours of discontent that I've certainly heard around the camp probably were all leading to this rather inevitable conclusion. <clears throat> Whether Ruben Zakovic can turn it around this season, I don't know. Whether Daniel Sturridge is going to be available for him, I don't know. One, one thing I do know, Perth have never in a 25-year history won the wooden spoon and they won't want to start this season. So I think that's probably why they've made the change. Uh, Tom, what do you think that... Perth's 10 points off finals at the moment. They've got 10 games to go. So, uh, of course, Ruben Zakovic, as Simon mentioned, uh, he's the new head coach for now. So what should he be aiming for for the rest of the season? I think it's got to be just a case of solidity from here. It's it's There's, there's not much expectation on his shoulders, I would say. And I think it's really got to be tell the players to go out there and try and take it to the opposition, try not to be pragmatic, try and get them playing aggressive attacking football because they've really got nothing to lose, do they? Um, and I really, I, I just really hope Sturridge can get onto the field in, in the last few games of this, or the, the sort of second half of this season for Perth because it's a real shame that Sturridge hasn't worked out because as Simon alluded to, he's a, he's a genuine marquee and as we alluded to before, he, he is someone that gets bums on seats in the A-League Um for, for many reasons, being obviously a, a former star of Liverpool who have such a rich following in Australia, I was expecting the, the, the Liverpool rickshaw to come around the country following Daniel Sturridge, but unfortunately it's not worked out like that. And I, I really want to see him do well because in his prime, when I was growing up, watching Sturridge play, he was just phenomenal. 
So we've got four more games to get through A-League-wise, and it is getting quite late here. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about things that are never going to go to air. So I've got a fun little game for you all. You've all got 30 seconds to talk about a game or two each. Uh, so we're going to rattle off through these last four A-League men's games. And Lucas, we'll start with you, uh, with Perth Glory losing 4-1 to the Brisbane Roar. Yes, yeah, so as I said, Perth Glory uh, weren't exactly at their best, but at the same time they did have a few chances um, in the end, this was, I think, at the end of the game, he sort of felt that the writing was on the wall for Garcia. Coming into it, he needed a win. So in the end, Brisbane, a very, very vital win for them because they're also sort of in this race not to get the spoon. Simon, Central Coast Mariners 4, MacArthur FC 2. Can I do Western Sydney Wanderers Adelaide? Because that was the game I called. I was playing a gig on Saturday night when the Mariners came in. <laughs> I, I was going to give you that one as well, but you know what? Just, just take that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll do this, the uh, the board draw between the Wanderers and Adelaide. Um, actually, it wasn't a board draw. It was actually a decent game. I enjoyed it. Uh, but both sides pushed for, for the winner. Um, but it's the same old story for the Wanderers. They're quite decent, actually, defensively. Um, even without Reese Williams, but their problems are at the other end. And I don't quite know why that should be because they've got plenty of talent. Bernie Abini, Lee Petratos, Terry Antonis, Tom Ahmed, Rami Nazarene, but they just they struggle to hit the back of the net. Um, Adelaide probably a little bit below par by their standards and um, you know, missing a big opportunity to close the gap on, on the top two. Uh, although they did have one or two chances of their own, but um, yeah, in the end, they had to settle for a point, which wasn't much good to either, to be honest. Tom, did you watch Central Coast Mariners 4, MacArthur FC 2? No, but I watched Knicks versus um, versus Wellington. <laughs> okay, cover that. I'm not sure anyone watched the Central Coast game, so you know what? Six goals, but I think we'll have to skip it. Tom, uh, Newcastle Jets 4, Wellington nil. <laughs> yeah, look, what I'll say is I think that the Newcastle Jets are the A-League's, uh, the A-League's version of cryptocurrency. Very volatile, but when they hit the highs, boy, do they hit the highs. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, like it. I, I think it's, it's it's difficult to take a lot out of this game because Wellington had so many players missing through New Zealand duty. Um, obviously, the biggest being Ollie Sale, who has been, in my opinion, the best goalkeeper in this league over the course of two seasons. Alex Paulson has been good when called upon, but Ollie Sale is just phenomenal. And yeah, it's it's difficult to take a lot out of Wellington's performance, but seeing Newcastle score a lot of goals and seeing the likes of Mikel Tadzi, Brunel and Pena perform that well alongside the Aussie workhorse in midfield, the Port Macquarie Pelé, Angus Thurgate, was a really good sight in my opinion. Um, I'll, I'll give you a view on uh, Mariners and, and MacArthur actually. Um, first of all, the big win for the Mariners because they needed that to, to stay in touch with the top six. Uh, and I don't quite know what's happened to MacArthur at the moment, but they, I think they've copped 11 goals in the last <coughs> four matches. Tom's so, rubbing his hands together for the listeners at home. <laughs> so yeah, I think the Bulls have got some issues defensively to sort out. But I think a bigger question, and, and this, again, speaks really to the bigger problems with the league, is it's lovely for the yeah, league to go to Mudgee and you know, take the game to the locals. Unfortunately, there didn't seem to be many people there. Um, but why are we still doing that? How, how do we expect to build a fan base in you know, the homes of these clubs if we're constantly taking matches to 
other towns. I don't I think it's baffling, to be honest. There's obviously some sponsorship deal or some money changed hands or something uh, for them to go off. And, you know, nothing against the good people of Mudgee. I'm sure it's a lovely town, but uh, I'm not sure the Mariners should be playing early games there, quite frankly. Tom, tell us how you feel about MacArthur, just quickly. Reiterate your stance. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ante Milicic, but, yeah, I, I'm not a fan at all. I don't understand how they can chuck nine players behind the ball every game and still concede four goals, but that's fine. <laughs> well, uh, with that shocking news that Tom isn't a fan of MacArthur, I think we'll now go to uh, a chat that I may have had with Kieran or he may have had uh, with his phone doing a monologue. So he's going to talk about the women's preliminary final that happened on the weekend and preview the grand final coming up. So uh, here he is. Hi Harper, so yep, we had a big week this weekend, just the one game, but it was Melbourne Victory versus Melbourne City, it was the preliminary final, uh, City had to play Victory because they lost to Sydney FC the week before in the first semi-final, and Victory got the chance to make the grand final after beating Adelaide in a pretty surprising result, 2-1 down in uh, Adelaide. Um, it was sort of a case of Victory being in the ascendancy, while City were sort of running out of steam. They had lost some key players like Melissa Barbieri and Tyler J. Vlanich, who had, um, yeah, the, the, like she's a very good player, Vlanich. She she creates a lot from left back and, and um, defends very well on that wing as well. So without her, they really were missing, you know, one of their most important players. And, and Barbieri, I think, has been in the top three or four players in the competition this season. So, yeah, well, well City um, City needed to score early and um, and keep the lead. They were really unable to do that. And once Victory took the lead and then scored a second one crucially before half-time, City didn't really have the players to, to change the game and, and, and regain momentum in the second half. Um, Victory had Alex Chidiak, who was in probably the best form I've, I've seen her in years. She was just everywhere. Like, I think her heat map shows her covering most of the ground, really. She was just in everything. Chasing down loose balls, taking players on, running down both flanks. Setting up goals, setting up chances. She probably could have scored a couple herself. It's not for the offside flag and some pretty good goalkeeping from Sally James. Melina Ayres coming back in the team made a big difference for victory. And I think they've just they've just really got all their players back when when they need them most at the end of the season. Coming looking into next week, um, Sydney FC are a different proposition altogether for them. It's going to be really difficult to beat Sydney because unlike City, they have players that can change the game against. Um, in the in the semi final, uh, Melbourne City were two 0 up, and Sydney were able to bring players on that could completely alter the momentum and 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 the way the match played out. So it was um it was a case of bringing on Sarah Hunter, Maria Cote Rojas, and Courtney Vine, who all scored goals. And you know it, that's 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 a um a unique thing that Sydney have this season where they have players that can come on and impact a game like that. Victory do too. Um, but their best eleven is is good enough to meet Sydney's. I don't know if the players coming off the bench are as high quality as Sydney's are. So if victory score and and hold the lead, they'll be very good. And if Sydney can get a, get a good lead, I don't know if victory can catch up with them. So it'll come down to who scores the first goal. If I have to pick a winner, I think it's probably going to be three one to Sydney FC. Otherwise, you know, victory definitely have the talent to do that. As I showed last year, they can they can beat Sydney in a one on one game. And earlier this season, they did play in a, a two all draw. That was the sort of game I'm talking about where it was fairly close, but Sydney's individual quality pulled two goals basically out of nothing. Victory were able to come back and beat them, but um, uh, sorry, draw with them, but it wasn't uh, like a, a real Sydney-style display for the full 90 minutes. That was 
in a bit of a down patch for their season where they, they finally drop points after a long, unbeaten and untied run. So really coming into this game, I think victory uh, are finally hitting form. They've got their full team back. Molina Ayers is back. Brooke Hendricks has settled in very well. Um, Polly Doran's eligible to play after some initial confusion if she was suspended or not. They've got their full squad. Sydney do too. This is what we really want in a grand final. It's two of the, team, the league's best teams coming up against each other in the deciding match. And that's kind of the way it should be. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's going to be a really interesting game and I don't know who will win. But if I absolutely have to pick a winner, I think Sydney 3-1. They're at home, they've had a week off and uh, they've got the depth on the bench to change games if it doesn't go their way early. Thank you very much for that, Kieran, as always. Uh, going out of your way to talk about the women's football again for the second time this week. But just before we get into the Socceroos, got a couple questions from Twitter. Uh, Tom, we might put this one to you first. This is from Ben Walsh. Uh, he's got a question on the coaching styles in the A-League. Uh, he says, we see coaching styles and tactics copied and pasted as a blueprint for success a bit in football. But in your opinion, is the A-League missing a coach who can raise the bar once again, referring to coaches like Gombau, Mombert and Ange? Look, it's such a tough question, but I think we're really seeing a new sort of wave of Australian coaches coming through with their own philosophies, and I think that's really good to see. I think the two that have impressed me in particular are Arthur Pappas and Nick Montgomery. I, I think... Arthur Pappas has rightfully um, received a lot of plaudits for the way that he's set up his, his team to play this season. And I think if with some refinement to that style, obviously he's been a bit of a disciple to Postacoglu and a lot of Postacoglu's philosophy is evident in the way that Pappas coaches his side. But I think if he refines the, the defensive end of that game, and I don't think it's, I think a lot of it is to do with the personnel rather than uh, the system, because I think the system of defending that Pappas wants to inculcate at Newcastle works. It's just, it doesn't work as well when you've got Jordemann and Elsie trying to hold the high line, who are quite susceptible to being beaten in behind. So I think I really enjoy that with Pappas. And then Montgomery, in terms of their ability without the ball, I think it's great to see that the way that they press high up the pitch, the way that they win balls in midfield. Obviously, Bojanic is a really key part of that. And he's been phenomenal as a conductor for the Central Coast. So I don't think there's necessarily the biggest problem. Um, personally, I'd like to see more Australian coaches take that lead and then get more Australian coaches in Europe. Why not? I think we need more Australian coaches, um, like, really improving and using the A-League to improve themselves and, I guess, have a grounding for their philosophy and stuff like that. I don't think we need as many foreign coaches like Gombau, etc. Now, we've got another question on the Socceroos, but we might just uh, talk about how it all stands at the moment, all the World Cup qualifiers and all that. So, uh, at the moment, we're third in the group, currently in the playoff spot, of course, four points off Saudi Arabia, three points off Japan, but we lead both those teams on goal difference. And uh, funnily enough, those are the two teams that we've got left to play. So, first up, of course, is Japan this Thursday night, 8.10pm Sydney time, Stadium Australia. Simon Hill, how should we be approaching this game? Well, with the intent of winning it, obviously, <laughs> um, because it's they will die. Uh, you know, there is no other way 
that we can get to a World Cup automatically. Uh, that doesn't mean that we should go out and go and hoe, obviously, because Japan are a very good side. So they've got to be mindful of you know their attacking talent. Uh, in particular, I've been hugely impressed with Junior Ito on the right-hand side. I, I think he's dynamite, and I do worry about that, to be honest. Um, Graham Arnold's maybe got a big decision to make. Does he go with Aziz Bayic, or does he you know, stick with Joel Keane? Um, who is now overseas, of course, playing with Odensa. Um, how does he address the defensive frailties that have been shown in the last few games, particularly against Oman, but also against China? The fact that they have been able to see games out, the fact that they've conceded late goals. Um, who operates in that defensive pivot position in the absence of a Miller Yedinak type figure that I think the team is sorely lacking at the moment? Uh, does he go with Jimmy Jago? Um, does he select Johnny Stensmith, who he, he spoke very highly of on, on my radio show last week? Uh, these are critical selection issues for Arnie. Um, and, you know, what, what to do about Bruno Fornaroli? Does, I don't think he'll start, to be honest, but, uh, you know, he's obviously not just been brought into the squad for the ride. So is he there just as a, a pinch hitter off the bench if, if Australia needs a goal or... You know, is Arnie going to try and um, implement him into some sort of, you know, plan B, tactical plan as well? It's it's fascinating. Uh, it's worrying because obviously, you know, it's on the line. And I, I think we're all a bit nervous about these two games. Um, and if you ask me, are Australia going to win them both? I would say probably not, in all honesty. I hope I'm wrong, but probably not. Yeah, I think we all hope you're wrong there. I haven't put too many smiles on faces in this Zoom right there, Simon, but Tom, if you've your hand up, your hand is up there. I think a lot of this game, it's. I'm so interested to see what 11 Graham Arnold picks because I think he's got two options here. I think option number one is to trust our technical ability against, if we're being frank, a team who is superior in that department. And two, the, the other option is to trust our physical ability to overrun the Japanese. So, so in, 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 the, in the first respect, what we could do is we could, we could play with sort of Rogic, Rustic, etc. in midfield and look to beat Japan at their own game, which, which will be difficult, but obviously will be buoyed by the home crowd. And I think my heart really suggests or tells me that that's what we should be doing. We should be trusting ourselves. We should be playing all of our most expressive players, getting them all out on the pitch. But but my head tells me that the way to beat Japan is by being physical, it's by, by being intense, and it's by being aggressive. And that's the way that Saudi Arabia beat them in Jeddah. It was, it was through sheer intent and energy that they got that 1-0 win. And I think that victory was typified by the goal that Japan conceded. Um, for those of you that haven't seen it, Salman Al-Faraj, the captain of Saudi Arabia, essentially pressed Gaku Shibasaki into a cul-de-sac and then he gave the ball away inexplicably uh, to Firas Al-Baraikin, who finished 1v1. And that was the decisive goal in that encounter. And I think for the, for the whole of that game, Saudi were very, very intense, made life very difficult for Japan. And I think that's the sort of thing that's missing from the soccer is at the moment. I think we really need to push them really, really hard and try and trust that physical side of our game because I think we can beat them at that. 
Yeah, um, I think you touch on being interested in the lineup. I think, like you sort of um, went over there, the midfield is the key, uh, and Simon said as well. I think Jago is the way to go. Um, I'm not sure if maybe Graham Arnold was going for a walk with his dog to maybe visit his, his neighbour Gianni Stensness and, and tell him he's in the squad. He's put a lot of faith in him very early to pick him, in my opinion. Um, to be honest, I, I think it should be Jago. If Rogic is fit, which is a big if at this stage, then I think it will end up being um, Jago, Rogic and Hrustic. But again, like you say, it's, it's hard because... Japan are technically better than us all over the park. So we can't sort of rely on those two players who happen to be our best players. Um, I, weirdly, I think Moy being out is almost a blessing in disguise because we've got a bit of an, an embarrassment of riches of all our best players sort of playing in that similar position. Um, the wild card to that is, and I'm not sure, Simon, if, if you have a, have a say or an opinion on this, but someone like Genro or, or Metcalf, if, if maybe they get a go. Look, I love Connor Metcalf. I've said it on a few occasions during commentary this week. I, th- I think he is uh, a, a first-choice socceroo in waiting. Um, I love his energy. He can you know, work box-to-box. To box. He is the archetypal modern-day midfielder. He's physically strong. He can tackle. He can create chances. He can take chances. I'd love to see him given a start. Maybe this is the moment. I, I don't know. Um, I, I think you know that there are certainly big selection issues for I to consider, and he's got to get this right because there are no second chances. Now, the, the, the one thing I was going to say is Japan have got a couple of issues as well. I read that there without Dyson Maeda, he's he's pulled out of the squad today. I think they're missing Osaka as, as well. Um, so they've got one or two issues, but Maya Yoshida is back, and, and I think you know they'll they'll want to have him back to, to deal with probably Jamie McLaren or maybe even Mitch Duke. You know, is it time for Mitch Duke to get a start? He's done well for the Socceroos off the bench, um, and and have that physical presence that does worry the Japanese. You know, you go back historically and think of Timmy Cale and all all the goals he scored aerially against Japan. Uh, is this a game that's suited for Mitch Duke more than Jamie McLaren, particularly as he plays his club football over there and knows, you know, a lot of these players probably intimately, even though he's you know, playing in J2 and not the top division. Um, so that there's, a, there's a lot of things for, for Arnie to, to chew over, uh, not least, of course, the fact that he probably won't be there himself due to COVID. So... It's yeah. It's it's not been the best build-up for them, has it? Let's be honest. With you know Craig Goodwin pulling out due to COVID issues, Jackson Irvine as well, injuries, um, absences. It's uh, it, it couldn't have asked for a worse build-up, really. Well, I think I could be wrong, but is Graham Arnold a chance to be there on Thursday because he tested positive last Thursday, and then if he tests negative this coming Thursday, he'll be there? Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's possible, I think. I mean, there's a similar scenario because this is the second time he's had it, obviously. Um, and it was the same in the build-up to, well, I mean, what was the last home game? Saudi game. Vietnam. Vietnam. Vietnam game. Vietnam game. Goodness me, I've lost it on about 80 games since then. It's difficult to remember. Um, yeah, I think there was a similar scenario where, you know, if he did tested negative um, on the day of the game, then he was actually going to go and set up in the stand. But of course, all the, the preparation work had been done 
with Glenn and Mullenstein as you know the, the guy on the sideline. So may, maybe we'll see a similar scenario this week in in Sydney. But of course, it's been complicated by the fact that he's he's been caught uh, out walking his dog when he should be. So <laughs> goodness me. <laughs> Uh, just touching that very, very quickly, Football Australia fined him $25,000 for breaching his isolation, walking his dog without a mask uh, out there in New South Wales. But, yeah, I think I would probably have a consensus view on whether that's right or wrong here. So not much debate needed for that. But Sharnen has got a tweet here. He asks, well, Tom, we'll put this one to you. How are you going to best utilise Fauna Raleigh for the Socceroos if you were Graham Arnold? It's a, it's a tough question. Personally, I absolutely love Fornaroli and I think it's brilliant to see him. Um, I think it says a lot about the multiculturalism of Australia as a whole that he's playing for the Socceroos. I think it says a lot about the multiculturalism within the group as well because he's, he's someone that, um, that now calls Australia home and I think that was something that was really poignant in his interview that he did uh, with Chris Carulli, uh the other day, I think he, he said Australia is is my home now, and I, I thought that was really sort of really sort of poignant thing that Fonaroli said because I think football is a unifying concept, and to see him playing for the Socceroos, it will be absolutely fantastic. So just have that there, and then as a footballer, I think um, his ability sort of speaks for itself. He's a marksman in front of goal. But I think more than that, what Fornaroli will provide is a reference point for the likes of Rogic, for the likes of Frostich, for the likes of Boyle to play off. Because when you have someone like Fornaroli who can hold the ball up with his back to goal, win fouls, I think it really makes a difference. So whether that comes off the bench or from the start um, uh, will be interesting. I'd like to see him start because I think he's a great footballer, but I don't think anyone will be surprised and or unhappy if McLaren starts because he's, he's been in stellar form. Lucas, a couple other uh, fresh inclusions in this um, Socceroos squad. Uh, very recent news, Ben Falami and Kenny Dougal have been called up because Jackson Irvine and Craig Goodwin uh, can't play because of various types of COVID impacts and Aaron Moyes also out with COVID, as we mentioned before. So how, how much is this all going to affect our prospects. Yeah, they're all massive blows. I think Goodwin is a one that hurts a lot, especially because he's a close contact, which is, you know, a rule that not all countries have. Um, so it's a real shame. And South Australia's is stricter. We only need 15 minutes. So I'm not sure he might not have even qualified um, if it was in another state. Uh, Aaron Moy, as I touched on, I feel like that is almost a blessing in disguise considering he hasn't played that much football. Um, Falami's an interesting call-up to me. Um, I know he's been very, very good this season, but he's very early. Um, I've been pretty vocal that I think Volpato should have been given a go in, in this squad. We don't have many options on the wing. Graham Arnold has said, look, he's, he's going to represent us at some stage. We've had good conversations. Well, then why is he playing youth football with Italy? Um, so that will be a, an issue for f- the future more than more than this occasion. Um, I, I think uh, the the wings and up front, I'm pretty sure, I think are fairly set. I think McLaren will start up front. I think Leckie won't be quite fit and it'll probably be Boyle and Mabil. 
But yeah, as, as we said, midfield is the real key area and Graham Arnold has to get this right. I just wanted to, uh, particularly to Lucas, given that you're in South Australia, I would have loved to have seen, you know, given the absentees, Mo Torre get a call up because I think he's, I know he's raw, I know he's not ready for a full 90 minutes, Carl Beatrice said that, even at club level. But he offers that something different off the bench. I mean, ben Falami's a very good player. I think he's had a terrific season as well. Um, but I think Torre or the likes of Mo Torre are more, the, you know, the future in a, in a real striking sense. I think I think I said a couple of weeks ago on the pod as well. If he played for Sydney or Melbourne Victory or any of those teams, I think he would be in the frame. There's a bunch of guys, strikers and wingers, that are sort of getting these goes that maybe aren't. So, for example, Ben Halloran just just got a big Asian move. It was fantastic in the A League. No one ever considered him for a call up. It's an Eastern um, Seaboard conspiracy, is it, Luke? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like to peddle that opinion. Um, but I, I think it does hold up. And the other example of that is um, uh, the unbelievable, it doesn't matter because they probably won't get game time. It's incredible. It's it's wrong that Andrew Redmayne and Danny Vukovic have been called up for this squad and Mark Birgitte is not in this squad. I'd agree with that, actually. Um and, and actually, you know, we haven't touched upon the goalkeepers, but Birigiti has been a terrific form, you're right. And Danny Vukovic and Matthew Ryan are not playing mm. for their clubs. They're sat on the bench week in, week out. And yet, technically, they're the first two keepers. Mitch Langrak, of course, has made himself unavailable. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think Birigiti's been in outstanding form this season. It's, it's considered himself very unlucky. Even someone like Lawrence Thomas as well. Joe Gauchi has been called up um, as, a, as a development player. If I was him, I would have been going to Arnie saying, why the hell am I not in the squad? I've had a better season than Redmond. Well, another young player that I know Tom thinks should probably be called up is Christian Volpato. But he, he got called up for their Italian under-20s team recently. Lucas and Tom have both talked about this on the show before. But Simon, very interested to, interested to know your thoughts on the whole Volpato saga, I guess. <laughs> well, look, you know, I don't know an awful lot about Christian Volpato other, other than what I've read and seen. And, you know, obviously he's making his way with Roma in Serie A, playing under very experienced coaches, Jose Mourinho, and the, the kids clearly got ability. Uh, sometimes we can go a bit like pop and scream, cap him, cap him, you know, before players are ready. And I know there's been an awful lot of conversation as well about, oh, this is a real problem with our development system that he slipped through the net. Well, yes and no. Now, what we don't know is that, you know, we didn't see him, most of us, like to be honest, when he was 15, 16, coming through the system at Sydney FC, Western Sydney Wanderers, the two clubs that he was with. Maybe at that point he wasn't ready. You know, for an A-League contract. The problem we have, the greater problem, which again speaks to our issues again here, is that we don't have any fallback for those players when they do, you know, slip away from our A-League club. They either go into semi-pro football at NFL level, they drop out of the game altogether, or they take their chances and go overseas. And that's what Paul Pato has done. Same story with Kenny Dougal, if you remember, of Brisbane Raw. We didn't make a first-team appearance. Next thing you know, boom, he pops up at Wembley scoring two goals for Blackpool as they got promoted to the championship. And everybody here goes, oh, how did this guy get away? Um, 
So it, it's about, you know, growing our game as, as an industry as much as anything else. Um, is he ready for the soccer is at this precise moment? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I trust that Graham Arnold's probably got a bit better info on that than me. Um, if he's playing for the Italian junior teams, well, that's, you know, that's okay. That doesn't necessarily rule him out of playing for Australia in the future. Uh, and Arnie seems to be pretty secure in the knowledge that he does want to play for the Socceroos at some point going forward. So I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Um, yeah, he's, you know, he's clearly a, a very exciting talent and we don't have too many of, of those sorts of players playing in the big leagues of Europe. He's still very early. You know, he's, only, he's only just made his debut, so I think we should all calm our jets a little bit. I had the opportunity to speak with Tony Basher last week, um, who obviously was Christian's mentor, quite an interesting fella, um, made some interesting claims. Uh, article coming up soon on Kick360. <laughs> um, but one of the things that he did say, and one thing that uh, reflects, I think, what you were saying, Simon, is that uh, whether it's it's true or not, but he claimed that he has seen a lot of better players than Christian come through the system, and now a lot of them are cleaners, they're plumbers, they're electricians because yep. they became disenfranchised with football following their release from an A-League club, and I think that's a big problem. Well, it is, and, and you're right, but you know, pointing the finger at the A-League clubs is not necessarily the answer. Okay, there might be a few that have slipped through that you say, well, they shouldn't have got away. But the fact is in that every other country in the world, that happens. You know, David Platt, who went to represent England at the World Cup in the, 80, in the 1990s, uh, he was released by Manchester United, and he had to go down into the third division to start again with Crew Alexandra, before he worked his way back up to the top. It happens in football, happens a lot. The difference is in England and in Italy and Spain and most countries around the world, is that there's a safety net at a second division, a third division, a fourth division even, for players to continue as professional footballers and rebuild their careers if that you know, early promise isn't necessarily realised and they can you know, relaunch again, even the likes in the modern day of Jamie Vardy. I mean, he came from Fleetwood Town in the, in the conference. Um, it, it wasn't that he was spotted right away as, as this, you know, big talent who's going to score a bucket load of goals in the Premier League. So it happens all around the world. Our problem is we have 12 professional football clubs in this country, 11 if you exclude Wellington Phoenix. So, of course, some players are going to slip through the minutes. Um, that's why it's so important that we have a national second division sooner rather than later so we have more opportunities for those young players even if they slip through the net first time around. And I think personally that's one of the many reasons why we're sort of lagging behind the big countries in Asia. You only have to look at the two teams, the two countries ahead of us in our own group and I think that's fairly illuminative. Japan have three professional divisions. Correct. The first division, they play 38 games in a season. The second division, they play 42. At the age of 20, a Japanese player is typically had the same amount of professional minutes as someone like Nick D'Agostino has had at the age of 24. Right. So the likes of, uh, you only have to look at Wataru Endo, Takahiro Tomiyasu. These guys were playing in J2. And then two years later, 
Takahiro Tomiyasu is playing for St. Triton. One season there. He's off to uh, Bologna. Uh, and then he's off to Arsenal. And, and not just playing um, you know, at those lower levels, but playing for promotion or against relegation. High-pressure games. That helps develop footballers because they're playing under pressure at an intensity during matches. Now, RA League, as much as we love it, and it's fantastic, but, you know, we have a lot of games that, you know, particularly in the middle part of the season that don't have an awful lot of meaning because it's too early to decide the final spots and nobody's going down. So, you know, those those players are not learning to play under the, the most fiercest of pressure. Um, coaches are the same. You know, you talked about coaching earlier on in this podcast. Now, I remember a couple of seasons back, and this is not to throw Alan Stadjic under the boss, um, but it's just the one that comes to mind. When he was at the Mariners in his first season, he lost 12 games in a row. 12 games in a row and kept his job. Now, the following season, he did really well. To be fair, he got them, you know, preferred. But that would not happen at any other club in world football. And the reason is, if you lose 12 in a row, more than likely you're going to be relegated and the manager loses his job. That's the sort of pressure we do not have in this country. And the sooner we do have it, the better for our sport, quite frankly. Well, uh, I was not expecting this Socceroos chat to veer <laughs> all things relating to the A-League and existential matters, I guess. But Lucas were just Lucas and I were just sitting back here and enjoying it. That was very good, guys. But one more thing about Socceroos. I want prediction from everyone. Lucas, since you haven't spoken for a while, what do you, you think is going to happen in the Japan game? Scoreline. I've decided, I feel like a lot of the time I'm negative. I've decided I'm going to be positive this week. I'm going 2-1 Australia. Oh, okay. Let's hope so, Tom. Oh, and then we beat Saudi Arabia, just to be clear. <laughs> right. Fingers crossed, Tom. I, I, I think I tend to be the, the optimist around the parts of Kick360, so I'm going to say that Australia will win. And I think the main reason for that, if, if I just talk a bit about Japan for a second here, is that as Simon was saying before, Japan have a lot of players a lot of key players missing not necessarily a lot of players but key players missing and I think if you look at Australia we've had to chop and change our team around in pretty much every game Japan since the Saudi Arabia game when Moriyasu effectively wielded the axe he's cut Shibasaki and Kamada pretty much out of the squad he's basically stuck with the same starting 11 in every single game since then and not having Asako not having Maeda not having Kyogo they're going to have to go with either an uncapped Daiichi Hayashi at centre forward or move Tak uh, Minamino to a false nine potentially and reinstate Genku Yadaguchi. Um, so I think with that in mind, I think that they they could be a bit there for the taking, a bit more unstable. And I think that the Socceroos, this is my long way of saying, that I think the Socceroos will also win 2-1. And I think it will be a late winner. Simon, can we go three from three for a Socceroos win? Bring back Mike Havanagh for the Japanese national team. <laughs> and if you remember him, I think it was about six foot five. Um, uh, look, I, I'm a realist. Um, 
and also people in Manchester are infamously glass half empty. So I'm going to say it's going to be a draw. Yes, I see you've got the Oasis T-shirt on now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think it's going to be a draw. I think, I think a, a draw suits Japan. I, I'm not convinced that Australia are going to be good enough to break them down. I think Australia will score, uh, but I think Japan might as well. And I think history shows that they, particularly in Australia, play a lot of draws. So I think this is one is going to be a draw, which will leave them well, still needing to go to Saudi and win, which is possible. Um, but I think this one is going to be a tough one. So a draw for me. Hope I'm wrong. Well, there's going to be a massive band of Kick360 journalists at this game against Japan in Sydney, uh, including Lucas, Tom and myself. So now it's time for the segment that the entire country has been waiting for. We've hyped it up a lot. <laughs> so what we're going to do, Lucas, uh, Tom and I were all thinking it would be cool to come up with a good song or chant for the whole terrace to get around up there in Sydney. So we've each done exactly that. We've come up with our own song or chant. And um, Simon Hill, you're a very musical man. You're going to judge us. And the, the best song uh, will hopefully be heard uh, sung by the terrace on Thursday for the world to hear. Fingers crossed. Are we all ready to go? Born ready. <laughs> Lucas, uh, with that very confident statement, do you want to kick things off? I wish I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> now, mine is uh, mine is for our new our new Aussie. Uh, anyone that's heard, I'm a Spurs fan, as I mention every week. Anyone that's heard Spurs' new uh, Kulisevsky chant to the tune of "Gimme, Gimme, Gimme," I've, I may have taken some inspiration. So uh, it goes, it goes. Gimme, gimme, gimme the striker from glory. He fucking hates Rakoba now that he's an Aussie. Gimme, gimme, gimme the striker from glory. True blue as they come, his name is Fauna Rolly. Oh, that's good. That's actually good. <laughs> and I, I, do have a, I, do have a conf- I do have a confession. I have done two. Oh, oh give us the other one. <laughs> and, and, and I would like permission for the other one, but... Seeing, seeing it's a lot to ask and it's sort of pre- putting uh, the competition into disrepute. That one was funny. This one's a more serious one. <laughs> but uh, uh, seeing we've got Simon, I'll just, I've decided I'll pull out the guitar. <laughs> and we're, 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 going all, we're, we're going all out. Uh, and I'll have you know, I think I've played guitar in front of about three people in my whole life. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're going all out. So uh, this, this is uh, a, bit of, a bit of Johnny Warren tied into this. I listened back to Johnny, he said I told you so, with Rogic and Matt Leckie, the World Cup we will go, you know they tried to stop us, but we're never gonna lose, we're Sheila Wogs and Poofters, call us the Socceroos, ale ale ale. Brilliant stuff. (laughs) Uh, We'll wait for Simon to deliver a verdict and a review of that once we've all done ours, I think. Tom, do you want to go next? Uh, A lot to, yeah, it's a tough act to follow, but you've got to give it a go. (laughs) Going to be no topping that, I'm afraid. Um, Well, hold on. I'll just say. Tom was telling me as we planned this that his one is going to be the best by far. So, <laughs> I, 
I, I hope this is Lucas was is topped very easily by you. Oh, well. So let, let's just say I spent about three seconds thinking about this before I um, I, I joined this, this podcast. <laughs> While you were doing Japan analysis, I was looking up rhymes for Fauna Roll. Just <laughs> <laughs> told. So mine is an uh, appropriation of uh, of Liverpool's chant for Roberto Firmino, given that uh, Fauna Roll is... You've lost already, Tom. You've lost already. <laughs> when you need an intro, you know it's going to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> so mine is, there's something that we all want you to know. He's the best in the world and his name is Bruno. <laughs> I'm number nine. Give him the ball and he'll score every time. See, <laughs> si, senor. Give the ball to Bruno and he will score. <laughs> well done, Tom. <laughs> that is nothing more than I like to hear at 11.30 on a Monday night than you singing uh, Liverpool based songs about the Socceroos. But I think now that you two have gone, I think it's time for me to go. And I'll, I'll say first up that mine isn't going to be sung live. I've recorded it. I've added some little effects in there to make oh. it sound even, even <laughs> fancier. <laughs> and for a little bit of context, um, people have called for the axe to be wielded on Graham Arnold, perhaps if we don't do too well in this next couple of games. And I've mixed that kind of idea with an iconic Aussie song, which I think is very fitting for Socceroos uh, fans to sing on the terrace. And I'm going to play the recording now. Going up to Sydney where the Socceroos always play. If we get belted by Japan, it could be on his last day. Am I ever gonna see his face again? Am I ever gonna see his face again? We've been shit since 2015, and no coach has changed that. But if Graham leads us to win, I'm gonna crack a fat. Are we ever gonna see his face again? Are we ever gonna see his face again? And that is about all we have. Uh, I didn't want to go too much further into it already. It went for about a minute. But I think it's time for Simon to give his verdict. That's a fix. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I'm hugely impressed by the field. Um, much, much more inventive than I thought it was going to be. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's a tough one. I think I'm going to go with uh, Lucas's song with uh, the guitar at the end. I quite like that. Uh, the Johnny Warren tribute. So I thought that was very good. So, Lucas, you're the winner. Now you've just got to teach all the Socceroos fans the word, which I know from being at the Green and Gold Army Tour in 2018 is virtually impossible when they're half cut. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you've got Dom Ronaldo there too. Yeah, exactly. Simon, <laughs> <laughs> so, mean, you could be on comms on uh, Thursday night. I am, yes. yes Try I'm not there. to sing along. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you do hear it, 
thousands of people singing it on the terrace. I think it, the Lucas Ronaldo deserves a shout out on Channel Ten. Yeah. Here. But, uh, <laughs> have, have we got anything else to say, boys? Or it's eleven thirty-six PM. Should we just wrap it up? Yeah. All right. Yeah, um, I, I, I just, I just want. That I, was I, pretty I, unequivocal. Tom. Yeah, that, that was that was that was very. Uh, you got somewhere to be? Have you got a Tinder date? A late Tinder date? What's it going? <laughs> got work tomorrow morning, boys. <laughs> oh well. Um, no, I just want to say uh, thanks a lot, Simon, for coming on. Uh, I think as young journo's, you are definitely someone we all look, look up to. Anyone who's been behind a mic in a football capacity. Um, we definitely look up to. I think a lot of us will be able to recite a lot of your famous lines at World Cups and stuff, uh, word for word. And hopefully, you give us uh, another one to recite uh, on Thursday night. I certainly hope so as well. Thanks for having me, boys. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers, Simon. Thanks so much, mate. Tom, thank you to you as well. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, and thanks, Simon. Pleasure, Tom. Good to good to speak to you guys. Lucas, finally, thank you very much, mate. Uh, I'll see you on Thursday night. See you on Thursday night. Ale, ale, ale. And thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you with a special KitCast, actually, on Friday from Sydney. KitCast boys doing a um, review pod from the studio next episode. So thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Bye.